be last. The idea is something like this. All of your instincts about getting ahead and, and coming in first and so on, they seem as American as apple pie. I just have to warn you, when it comes to kingdom work and kingdom character, they do not serve us well. And Jesus was deliberate to speak of his life as a life of service, and the life of following him must be the life of service. And so, if you will, let's read a litany of uh, verses. We'll read brief verses from several Gospels. I want to make the impression that this is not some teaching that's found here and there that sort of fades into woodwork when compared against the larger message. The truth is, this is a deliberate message that's repeated again and again. We read from all four Gospels. We'll read first from Mark, the 10th chapter, verses 43 and 44. And let me... Uh, suggest this to you by way of setting Jesus has just predicted his death it's gruesome he'll be handed over to the Gentiles he'll be mocked uh, he'll be killed uh, and then he goes on to say but he will be raised wow they sort of look at him I'm imagining that they turn their heads sort of sideways, not knowing how to process, wondering if they should ask or if they should just let that set there because they frankly don't know how to respond to it. It doesn't sort of show up on their screen. It's not exactly what they were expecting. And then sort of nodding internally, they say as if to take the conversation forward, well, that's well and good, Jesus. I don't know exactly what you're up to. But in the real world, things have to get done. And so let me spell this out to you in the conversation, I imagine, in English would go something like this. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, well, well, anyway, what, what we were getting to is my brother and I, when it all comes down, uh, we, we won't rank. We... We want to show, we want to be first and second. Uh, we, we figure we are in line and we're the best choice. And so it goes down in Mark's long file of the disciples just don't get it. They just don't get it. And Jesus starts this conversation to respond to these who seem to have so little appreciation for what he's going to be about and what he's going to be up to. And in that corrective word, he offers these words, verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke passes on a similar teaching in the setting of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the dispute without all the detail is noted there, is emerging there. And uh, apparently the gospel writers remember these sorts of scenes and teachings emerging in a variety of settings. And so Jesus utters this in verse 26 of Luke chapter 22. 
But you are not to be like that, these Gentiles and, and the world at large that follows this sense of hierarchy and greatness. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. This verse is followed by the simple lesson of the table. Jesus just asked them to think this through. Who serves who? <laughs> isn't it in the world around us, isn't it the weak that serve the strong? Isn't it the lesser that serve the greater? That's the way that is ingrained to the whole world, but it's not your way. Not, Jesus says, my way. In chapter 20 of Matthew, we have the parallel passage from there in Mark chapter 10. Some of the same particulars about the setting, although Matthew is a little less strong on the notion or less sort of emphatic about how slow the disciples were. For example, here he mentions that it's not just these sons of Zebedee, but their mom who is part of the angling to Jesus to get place and privilege and to end up where they ought to be given who they are to get ahead and so on. Maybe it's like Bathsheba plugging Solomon back in 1 Kings. But again, the other folk here, the ten, hear about the two and they're mad. I don't think they're mad out of some righteous indignation. I think they're mad instead because they feel like the best spots are being taken behind the scenes and they weren't in the, on the inside when it all seems to be uh, being um, addressed. And Matthew offers these words, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Although the image of slave is there in Mark, it strikes me even more emphatically in Matthew. It's not just a servant status. It's a slave status. And this is the image of what greatness will look like in the kingdom. The deference to put the needs of the master first. The deference to follow this counterintuitive example of the master to be servant, to be deferring to others, <clears throat> to let your existence and your initiative and so on be eclipsed by the will of another servant, slave. These are difficult things. It's echoed in Matthew 23, verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant. John has similar teachings. In fact, I've selected here from John chapter 13. This remarkable scene where Jesus takes the role of the servant, the lowliest of servants. And instead of sort of knowing that it's his party and everybody's there for him and he's sort of obviously in charge and he's the center of things and letting all of attention kind of come from him from the bottom up to recognize his status and his place, he instead leaves his place at the center of things and goes and takes towel and water and cleanses the feet of these disciples. 
Wow. It's a lesson that's hard to overcome and hard for those who received it to take. Reading from verse 12 in John's Gospel, chapter 13, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the counterintuitive, hard story of Jesus' own understanding of his mission. I'm the one who has come to serve and his insistence that people who follow after him must act and work for the kingdom, but their motive and their means have to be tied to service. It's counterintuitive. I suppose we're um, maybe wondering if this is one of those gospels things. Jesus seemed to overspeak so often and be so emphatic and maybe uh, guilty of hyperbole. And maybe the New Testament pictures it better, but the truth is you find no easier way when you go to Paul. Sometimes we go to Paul thinking his way is easier. It's not really the case. You might go to Romans 8, verse 17, where you'll be told in very emphatic terms, if you don't share the suffering, you're not going to share in the glory. Paul is emphatic that this same lifestyle must mark who we are and how we act. Now, I suppose it's easy for us, in light of the story playing out, to be hard on these disciples. They just don't get it. They just don't seem to be on board. Jesus can say it and say it and say it, and they look at him, tilt their head, wonder what to do. But I wonder if the truth is this. I wonder if we're not much better than those disciples, even having more of the story played out for us, because at crucial points along the way, when Jesus says something like this, I, I don't want you to try to build your name and so on. I don't want you to have this kind of ambition. I don't want you to have this angling to be first and greatest. I, I don't want this kind of thing to flood or, or, or fuel or motivate my, my kingdom and my service we sort of look at him and think, hmm, I can just check my own spirit looking at him and hearing that but not getting it, tilting my head sideways and saying, but, but Jesus, um, come on. You know how things work. The truth is things get done by go-getters and 
head knockers and people who get things done and, uh, and you need some initiative. And uh, we're happy for people who are pioneers and can go out first and, and get further than anyone else. And that's kind of what we hang our hat on. That's, that, that's kind of the strategy. And, and you, know, you, you know, Jesus, now down here, <laughs> we're going to have to do our best to keep your kingdom going. And, and, and you've got to cut us some slack here. I wonder if he looks at me just as he looked back at them saying, wow, you are slow, so slow. You just don't get it. And I suppose this pause and this humility is responsible any time you and I have the cross in front of us because it's the most counterintuitive reality that we'll ever find. If it's the cross that is our focus and our centerpiece, then I suppose we're always going to be sort of checking our own instincts. And we have to be trained to celebrate a new set of values. And we have to be trained like the hymn that we sang that, to take glory in the cross because nobody before took glory in the cross and nobody thought about God like this. I mean, you, you find bits and pieces of great social kind of envisionings of people's dignity and so on. But the truth is this. Most everybody who taught about God might think that God or their God was great. They might even occasionally think that their God was good, although you'd be surprised how seldom that comes along. But no one, no one, I mean, it's just not there. No one thinks that God is love. Nobody thinks God's instinct is to take off sort of dignity and remove sort of the status, dirty feet, a messed up world, sinful people, people who've chosen the opposite of the cross, people who have looked God in the face and said, you just can't really be serious. I know you're asking this from me, but I, I want to be in charge. I want rule of my own life. I, I, I want to direct my own course. I, I, can't just, I can't just let this go. I, I can't just surrender this. I, I've got plans. I've got initiative. I've got ambition. And it's not just the ones that are kind of eager beavers to get out there and to take life and to make something of themselves uh, that are in harm's way. It's also the wounded people of this world, the wounded people who sit and grieve in their woundedness and wound others along the way. They, too, are just as occupied with their place. And whether they're winners in life or maybe whether they see themselves as losers, the cross is an insult to every sensibility, somehow, if our Lord came and endured the cross for our sake, that he was servant and poured his life out for, for us, if he is the ransom that gives the liberty and hope and salvation to the world, then how we do business in the church and who we are matters and so we're brought to the same sort of paralyzing place when we look at the cross and we think of what it requires of us and what it asks of us 
And this morning, I just need to be faithful to you. I need to tell you and encourage you. I'm not asking you to make a minor adjustment. I'm not asking you to take on Jesus like an accessory, like your life looks pretty good, but if you just had this, it might help you with your family or maybe help you meditate and keep a sound mind during the epidemic. No, the cross is far more demanding if God is really like this, if God's Son has come on the cross and poured His life out, if His whole life, His whole teaching, His whole time among us was about service, then the truth is this. What matters finally is service in His name. He makes it plain you're not going to be in one place and your master be in another. You're going to ask that you be in one rank and your master be in another. And every scheme we have to build ourselves up, to create ourselves in our own image, or maybe in defiance to God, or maybe even to make ourselves the greatest of God's persons, right? To get more done, to reach more people, to do more than everyone else. Again, there's this haunting reality that at the center of the faith we proclaim, there's this cross. And as long as this cross is before us, then any pretense to anything else but serving just seems to fail. Now, Jesus calls himself a Lord. Uh, he does mention being first and so on in this inverted weird order. And I'm not suggesting to you that we not honor people along the way. Sometimes we honor, and rightly so. Sometimes we're celebra celebrating uh, what others have done for the name of Christ. And we don't need some sort of false deference. I remember... Uh, joking years ago about folks at the doorway and we were so deferential yes 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 we couldn't get in the door because nobody wanted to go first but the reality persists and the challenge persists and when you came to christ i think somewhere along the way the slow play ideas of what were going on in you were these you heard this cross. You heard about the call to surrender your life in faith and embrace Jesus Christ. And you looked at him and turned your head and said, What? I've got plans. I, I'm in charge. I've got initiatives. I've got some dreams. But if you came to faith in Christ, you came to faith in Christ when you looked at the mystery of the cross, you were overcome by the loving service of Christ and moved to come to him. But you came to him as a servant. You came to him saying, it's going to be your will and not my will. You came to him saying, I need your direction, your guidance. I place my life in your hands, not in my own. And it is this deference, it is this service that is the heart of every discipleship. But Jesus goes on to tell us it's also the way the work of discipleship gets going. You follow Jesus by doing Jesus kind of stuff. 
Again, I'm not suggesting we don't have hierarchies. I work for most of my life in an institution that is old and hierarchical. Universities have been around for a long, long time. I wonder how long they'll last in the future, but they've been around for a long time. Not many businesses have been in, in uh, active uh, kind of uh, service since the 1200s, but universities, these chaotic, old, hierarchical, hierarchical organizations, they seem to be very pliable, very persistent. And when I stand in front of a class, I don't think I do them any favor by suggesting I, I won't lead, I won't prescribe reading, I won't tell them what that needs to be done or the work that's ahead, or I'm not gonna be somebody, someone who's gonna evaluate their work. But if I am ever called to lead, and I think we are, that class has to be not about me, not even about making me great or popular, It's got to be about them. It's got to be shaped by the cross. It's got to be about my ambition, now cured and now transformed into a new initiative that I want to serve God who serves us in the cross. And now with the cross to lead me, I want to do even my leading with the heart of the cross. And so, I have to be servant to the person I teach. And we have to be servants to the people we lead, but also we have to be eager and willing and ready. And so I just present Jesus to you as this remarkable person like no other person. There's no really other message about God like this. There's no really, there's no really kind of talk about God like this. This is singular and, and odd. And so maybe you could, in your spirit, sort it out that you know you could hear messages about God being great and, and God being grand and this God and that God and one better and one greater, one stronger, one weaker. And you could hear all the stories that people tell about God. But when you hear this story, it makes a claim on you like none other. And there you are, face squared with Jesus, with Jesus who goes to the cross, with Jesus who says, my life, my ministry is about service. And that makes a claim on you. And there's only, there's only so many things you can do. And this particular piercing voice comes from Jesus. And he says, I have served you and I've loved you and I want nothing less than that from you. And so the way forward comes with the hard work of letting go of a kind of a ambition or at least letting our ambitions be completely refashioned and letting go of our anger that may uh, uh, provoke us to settle scores and, and, and to call the shots. But it doesn't matter if you're a winner in life or you see yourself as a loser in life. Uh, the world is not about life's great ambition. The world needs to be eclipsed by a new standard that has come and broken in to the, the light shining in the darkness and Jesus coming to say, I have loved you with a profound love. I have loved you with the love of my Father and the Spirit's stirring in you to provoke this love to enter into your very heart. And at the heart of all this is this cross. And so we hear this piercing word of Jesus. 
And we must respond for the first time for someone who's becoming a Christian, saying, okay, I'm going to set my life and my agenda aside. I'm going to set my false hope and my false destiny and my vain ambition about winning and everybody paying attention. And what I'm going to do is surrender to you. And I'll serve you. And you're my Lord. And because of what you've said, I'm going to serve people around me. And they'll be the object of my attention and my focus. And I will serve them in your love. A pastor has to decide, or a Sunday school leader has to decide, a person in church service has to decide when they see the cross. Wow. I'm going to give up the ambition to be measured by some great standard that the public will like. Years ago, I think the pastors, and uh, they wanted to be looked upon as uh, somebody who dressed and looked like a businessman in town. And they were dressed in suits. Now young pastors uh, seem to want to dress and look like some um, internet company guru. Want to be smart and with it. And I suppose there's just part of being in a society that will rub off on us, and we can't not be in a society. But I just want to say to you, none of these other ambitions, none of these other things that define us and move us can make us. And what has to be at the center of what we do, our motive, our character, and behavior, is the brokenness of the cross cross that refuels our own brokenness and calls us to serve and so let me even ask you in the era of this pandemic and the struggle so many struggles and the struggle that grips our country about justice and race and so many things seem to divide us and let me ask you to be this kind of champion this kind of great person to set aside every one of these worldly ambitions and scales and hierarchy and make the task of serving central. I spoke to one of my favorite uh, pastors and people this week. I was touched. He had received an enormous amount of criticism and one person particularly he brought to mind. And it was interesting to hear of their interactions and something told him not to fight back, not to argue. And during the course of time, the person's circumstance changed so much. And in the circumstances of this particular critic, when life got hard and turned she reached out to her pastor. He reflected back to me. If I had engaged in the argument, I might have won. I might have made points. I might have defended myself. I might have looked better. But he was so happy in this one case that he just kept the servant heart, kept loving her, kept pursuing her. And finally, what argument can't do, Loving service one day does. 
And their restoration is sweet and whole because the cross is the hope for your life, the hope for your forgiveness, the hope of our faithful service. At the center of everything is the cross. All the other standards of the world are now put on hold. And there is one new standard, the love of the cross. And the love of the cross is this piercing word that asks for us to suspend all else and love the one on the cross supremely.